So let's open up in prayer, and then we'll get started this morning. <clears throat> Father, we come this morning to worship you, to commune with the saints, to be filled with your Holy Spirit, to hear your word, to dine with Christ, to be taught, uh, to love one another, and to be sent out, Lord. So we pray that you would be with us this morning as you promised to be, and that we would uh, have a deeper faith in you through Jesus Christ. Amen. So I, I'm just going to continue to assert that I believe that the 930 is great for practical Christian living, teaching, um, and the 1030 uh, generally is for preaching the gospel in whatever selection of scripture we have in whatever way, culminating in communion and, and dinner together, being sent out. And so uh, since I'm at the 930, I still wanted to go through the book of Acts because that's very easy to prepare, at least for me, because you read the chapter and you tell people what happens and you talk about it. It's like, it's not that hard. Uh, or it's easier, it's easier for me. But uh, this morning, I kind of want to look at three different things. I don't know if I got my outline sent in time. Is there an outline in the bulletin? Great. 8.45 is not too late. Good. That's just because I woke up late. I had it ready. I could have done it last night. Could have sent it last night. But, uh, but I really just want to look at three things, which might be a little bit more... Um, what I'm trying to do is just examine a couple uh, things in, in the chapter instead of uh, maybe how I would normally do a, a lesson through one of the chapters on Acts during the 1030 cult meeting um, in communion or something. And so I want to look at Timothy uh, where in chapter 16 where it says, They increased in numbers and the city of Philippi. So one of the other differences <clears throat> between doing um, a lesson like this at the 930 is we don't have the scripture reading, so you're just going to have to open your Bibles and kind of read along and find, figure out where it is. And so we're not going to read the whole thing, but uh, I will look at uh, different selections of verses and we'll, and we'll read those, but we're definitely not going to have time to read the whole thing. And so I do want to remind everybody as we go through the book of Acts, it's been about three weeks since... Uh, We've since I've talked about Acts, and so I'll kind of remind everybody where we are at in the historical account, but taking Acts 1 is our kind of theme verse when Christ, right before he is ascending, says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is response to the disciples wondering, when is your kingdom coming? And this is how he answers it. Uh, you don't need to know exactly when that is or, or how that is, but, but you're going to receive power. And, and what we're looking at the book of Acts is the historical account of the early church, of the first century church after uh, Jesus had ascended and how Jesus continues doing the same works through his people in the church. And so I don't remember if we've used... I try to put a different subverse in there that relates to what the whole theme is about. And I think we've read about Acts, I think we've, I put in there Acts 3, 18 through 21, especially talking about that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord, uh, and that he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the restoration of all things, 
about which God spoke about by his holy prophets long ago. And so that was a big theme in the Old Testament, that Israel is going to be the repairer of the breach, be the restorer of the foundations for the entire world. And they're going to be the people of God uh, who all the nations stream to, to get wisdom, insight, and, and how to live. Um, and it would be through God's people that would be uh, going forth in the earth to, to uh, essentially go about this restoration of all things. And so we look at in the book of Acts after the day of Pentecost, and I just want to kind of fast forward to Paul, because that's where we're at in chapter 16, is after Paul's been converted and he's gone uh, on one missionary journey, he eventually comes back in the last few chapters we had the Jerusalem Council where they made a decision on, can we admit Jews uh, as Christians, and if we are going to admit them, how can they be admitted into the church? Do they need to go through the, what did I say? Jews. Of course, Jews can be in the church. Most of the church was Jews. Yes, Gentiles, thank you, can be admitted into the church uh, without circumcision. Because that was the covenantal ceremony in Israel that you'd be admitted, uh, usually, well, always for males, all usually on the eighth day, into Israel. And you would be a, a covenant member from about eight days old, ceremonially. And so this is right after the Jerusalem Council, and then last time we talked, Paul and Barnabas separate over a dispute about John Mark, because he had, John Mark had left previously in the missions field, and it doesn't, he doesn't say why, but uh, Paul essentially disagrees with Barnabas that he should come, and it was such a sharp disagreement that they decide to split. And from the rest of the book of Acts on, we get, we're following Paul. And so at this point... Um, we're going to pick up and we'll read, let's read 16, 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek, and they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And so I want to talk about them increasing in numbers daily, but let's, first I just want to look at Timothy, because he's an interesting uh, character that we get in scripture in, in the New Testament, and so out of all of Paul's companions, Timothy is the most talked about. Uh, he gets two letters, two pastoral letters written to him, and his name is mentioned far above any other disciple um, that accompanies Paul. And so, <clears throat> so what Paul was doing in this instance was he was just going around more uh, more like a deacon delivering the decision made at Jerusalem, going around and uh, they didn't have the United States Postal Service or, or any other more faithful private company. Uh, they had people to send letters, but, but he took them by hand and delivered that decision to the churches because that's how he was going to strengthen them and that's how the church had decided. Uh, and he was in that instance, Paul was more serving, you would say maybe as a deacon, serving the church under the elders and, and apostles than he was doing his own, his own missionary journey. 
As you know, some people, uh, when we start thinking of Paul, it's easy to think that Paul just had this vision of God and he just goes and does it. And that's not necessarily, that's not really the case. And so he is commissioned by the church to go deliver this decision. And he comes to, to Lystra and Derby, and where he has been before, where that's where he got stoned and got thrown out of the city and they thought he was dead. And uh, so he'd passed through, passed through there before and he meets Timothy. Um, and so if you go down, if, we, if you skip a couple verses and go down to verse 10, it says, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia. And so this is the first time in the book of Acts where the writer, Luke, is saying we. So this is now indicating that Paul has a team of at least Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke. And so Luke doesn't really get mentioned, like hardly ever, uh, in, in his own writings. He says we were doing these things, and so he's accounting himself for being there. But Luke, was, Luke was, is labeled as a physician in one of Paul's epistles, and so nobody really knows what Luke did, like really. Like, we don't know whether he was brought on because of, uh, like Silas, that he was called a prophet in, in the city he was from, and, and he accompanied Paul. Uh, Timothy, we don't know why he chose him, but he had obviously been a, in a disciple that people had spoken well of. And, but we don't really know about Paul, except for, I'm sorry, about Luke, except for he's a physician. It could have been just because he was a physician, and it would be nice to have somebody who could take care of your health while you're on a trip. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're traveling, and, and Paul was not older as like an old man, but he was older than the people he was traveling with, it would have been nice to um, have your health concerns uh, uh, or any health concerns being taken care of if you had kind of an accompanying physician. And so Paul starts assembling this team, which we'll get to, but I want to take some notes on, on Timothy. And so uh, Augustine notes in his writings that just how quickly Timothy, it seems to be asserted that he just gets up and goes. Paul invites him into coming on his, uh, his journey, his missionary journey, which it's hard to tell in the writings. It's, he's delivering this decision you know, to the multiple churches. He's going to be strengthening the churches, probably discipling them and talking to them. But it's, it should be noted that Timothy just seems, it doesn't say that there's any argument or let me ask mom or I got a soccer, I got a soccer game uh, <laughs> or something. You know, he just, he just gets up and goes. He leaves his family, he leaves his home, he leaves his country to, to follow the, the call of God on his life and to be part of, this, part of this team. And so that's pretty noteworthy. And then you should have notes on, on Tim in there. I thought it'd be cool to put Tim in there instead of Timothy. So that's just, a, that's just for you guys. And so the first one. So Timothy uh, was brought up. He was in a Greek, had a Greek father and a Jewish mother, as it says here in the text. Um, and so his father must have been around and had influence. It's not like we would think about today where, um, you know, with a, a culture of divorce or separation that, you know, it's very hard for two people of two religious backgrounds to stay together. But but Timothy's father very clearly had influence in his life because he was not circumcised. Yet his mother's faith and instruction had seemingly more influence on him. Uh, if you look at 2 Timothy 3.15, where Paul is writing to Timothy about how you've been acquainted with the scriptures from birth or from early childhood. And so in, a, in our culture, that happens more often than, than probably it did 
back then. And so we deal with that today where, where you've got mixed families with, with different religious backgrounds or even different types of practicing Christianity. Um, there's families that, you know, go to different churches separately and come back together. And then, you know, there's... Uh, people who get converted later in life after they're married and you know one of the spouses is is becomes a christian and and the other isn't immediately or sometimes ever and so uh timothy's a third generation christian when you look at second timothy 1 5 he paul is saying that i remember that your faith was passed down from your grandmother to your mother and so we're not too clear if that means that they were jewish converts as in they converted to Judaism, and then that's how he got the scriptures passed down to him in the, in the faith. Or if those were uh, uh, Christian converts, if that makes sense, that they had a Jewish background, and, and, or whether her, his grandmother converted to Judaism or to Christianity. But uh, I would assume that, it was, that they were Jewish and converted to Christianity, but there's no real information in the text. And so... Uh, so God is covenantal. He works generationally. And so sometimes I think that's just very noteworthy and, and something to consider because we think of like when, you know, when I became a Christian, my, I know my mother is a Christian, my grandfather was, and I'm not sure about my great-grandparents. At least on that lineage, I could look at God's covenant faithfulness down through genealogical lines uh, just how his grace got delivered to me. And I don't know what the Lord exactly has in store for my life, but, you know, I don't know if um, it was Lois and I think Eunice, I forget the grandmother's name, got, got one shaking the head that, uh, that uh, I don't know if they had thought that, you know, their child was going to be have big plans for him, but probably not with a mixed family where one's a Christian and one's not. You just some, we even naturally have those expectations that if, if they grew up in a home where their parents weren't a Christian or, or something, we, we uh, in a humanistic way, have lower expectations for them. But that's not what God had. That's not the expectation God had. He used someone who was only a third-generation Christian, who had a father that wasn't even a Christian, to be the, the primary um, uh, follower or disciple of Paul, who became the first bishop at Ephesus, and who who we get, uh, you know, that God ordained that, that Paul would write scripture, you know, uh, in, inspired by the Holy Spirit to Timothy, that would live in the history books forever. And so I just think that's a super big encouragement for anybody, you know, and how we would encourage people who do have spouses or come from families that aren't, that haven't been Christian, but God is, is doing something in the household regardless. And so I, I'm comforted you know, in those, those situations by, um, I think it's 1 Corinthians 7, where he talks about, you know, if the unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you, don't separate from them, because you, the believer, actually makes the spouse holy, and makes the children holy and clean. And so that's what happened in Timothy's, you know, instance. It wasn't, uh, you see that God is starting to to shift the maybe narrative of the Judaism of the day where you think that like, oh, I, came, I can track my lineage back to David or I can track my lineage back to you know, this patriarch or that patriarch or, or this person in history. And Timothy's just like, yeah, my grandma, 
That's it. That's all I got. And, and so God is often confounding the wisdom of our human conventions in those instances. And so that's just a huge encouragement for me. And so uh, Philippians 2.2 says that, uh, Paul says that Timothy was a faithful servant. Right? So Timothy was sent to Corinth by Paul so that he might become, not, not that he, that the church might become more mature. 1 Corinthians 4.17. And so Paul, uh, I keep mixing up my words, but Paul sent Timothy to Corinth. He sent him to Ephesus. Um, in, some, in the next chapter, in chapter 17, we'll see that uh, when they flee Thessalonica, I think Timothy stays behind with Silas, and, and Paul goes ahead, and then there's some communication where, where Timothy and Silas are like, all right, cool, it's, come, it's, it's safe to come here again. And so he's often being sent to various places, but he's just as Paul was sent out by the church, now he's sending out, he's sending out Timothy uh, to, to strengthen them, to mature them, to teach them um, Christian doctrine and, and the ways that Paul had instilled in them. And so looking at Timothy as kind of a character study, you have to kind of put all this together in, in the call of God on his life was, is, you know, when he's being sent to various churches to disciple them, you've got a whole book in 1 Corinthians about what they need to be discipled in. He's probably telling Timothy, like, hey, make sure they're not getting drunk <laughs> during service. Again. <laughs> like, be very, be very, I'm going to write this letter, make sure they read it, and if you have to go over that part again, go over that part again. Right? There was a lot of, uh, Corinth was a, a very unruly place uh, in the church. And so he's, so Timothy's kind of sent to bring order and to teach them and to bring them to maturity. And so that's what we'd call discipleship, right? And it's always, and it's, it's um, God is usually sending somebody, you know, ordained by the church to do that or associated with the church uh, in, a, in, in, a, in a official capacity. And so, uh, he was sent to other cities to strengthen the churches. You can see that in Philippians 2.19, where he says he's sending Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1.3, he's sent to Ephesus. And so Timothy, at the end of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16.10, uh, it's assumed that Paul's writing about the collection of the saints, and I'm going to send Timothy to you soon and treat him well, that Timothy was the one sent to Corinth uh, to collect the money for the saints in Jerusalem. And so he was... Uh, he was kind of an errand boy sometime, and he's like, you got to go over here, and you got to get the money and bring it back to Jerusalem. Uh, he had to make the church deposits. And so uh, Hebrews 13.23 says that he was imprisoned for his faith at some point, uh, and then let go. Um, we don't know when that was scripturally. There's no indication of that. It's just that the writer of Hebrews says, just be comforted that, by the way, Timothy got out of jail. <laughs> so... Uh, you guys can be comforted that he got out, right? And then this is just history. He was the first elder at Ephesus or the first bishop. Um, and so Timothy is kind of a notable character here uh, just by looking at his background of what all that we know that he did scripturally. I think it's just super interesting and, in, and encouraging to look at different people that follow, uh, follow Paul in the book of Acts. And, you know, we learn a lot about Barnabas uh, through history, and, and this is kind of the end of his chapter here, but and what he did. And so I'd encourage everyone to kind of look through, especially in the book of Acts, and, and do word studies and character studies on some of the people, 
Um, Silas is the next prominent one that we see, in, and he started by being a prophet in, I forget which, which city, but he was a prophet who ends up following Paul. Um, and, so, uh, and so how that relates to, one of the major themes I'm trying to bring out in the book of Acts is how this relates to building Christian community and how that community is supposed to stand the test of time. Right, And so <clears throat> I think what we see in the book of Acts is a clear narrative that Christian community, churches, people uh, in Christ fellowshipping together in the Holy Spirit are supposed to be building community in such a way that it's going to outlast the culture. Wherever the culture is going, every city he goes to, even though most of them are Roman colonies or colonized by Rome, uh, there's churches planted that are supposed to stand the test of time, that are supposed to pass things on, that are supposed to live in a certain way, that as the culture uh, is deteriorating, they're going to survive, right? And so when that comes to, to Paul collecting a, a team of people uh, to go out on his missionary journey, I think the most notable thing is if God's raising you up to do anything, he is raising you up to be part of a team. He's raising you... Uh, to, to work in a body. He's raising you up to do um, something with somebody else. It's always relational. Because God is covenantal, which means he's also relational. Um, so you would imagine that because God is one and he's in relationship with himself in three persons, that everything he calls his church to do is relational. And so there's no really lone rangers. There's no isolated people in the kingdom of God. Uh, that are, there might be, um, we're called to visit the widows and the orphans, and they are more isolated, but we're called to, to take care of them. But you'd actually be surprised at how many calls we get, uh, how many messages on Facebook we get from people who are, uh, I'm going to put square quotes, traveling preachers who want to come and preach at our church, because they found, you know, they just Google churches in Dayton, and they message all of them, I'm assuming, and uh, it's just very surprising. We get calls, I don't know, probably about six, eight times a year, maybe, you know, in some, like in the summer season, that's really popular. And so we get calls a little bit more frequently of just, and we're like, are you part of a church? And they're like, no, I'm just traveling preacher. God's called me. And I'm like, oh, uh, okay, why don't you come and have dinner with us? And, and never, they don't take us up on it. I've never had one come to church and take us up on it. So... But God's raising up a team here and, uh, for the call. And so Paul could never accomplish the call of God on his life without his team. No one person is ever going to be able to accomplish that. That's why uh, if God's called you to get married, it's to another person. I just want, you guys, you guys can take notes on that if you want. When you get married, there's always, you're getting married to I'll just be more specific, one other person, in case you're wondering about the number of people. One other person that is the opposite sex of you. There you go. Important in our cultural climate right now, and probably forever. Uh, important all the time. And so he's always, that's, you know, Adam couldn't finish or couldn't accomplish his goal of protecting and tending the garden without Eve. And... Um, I'm reading an interesting uh, book by, I think his name is T. Edmund Alexander. There's an Alexander in there. Uh, it's just an overview of the Pentateuch and how just it relates to how Adam 
was probably called to build a city, or at least that the garden was supposed to be city-like, and he couldn't do that even without, with just Eve. He would have needed more children. He would have needed children to, to, uh, to build. And so, um, so when, I think that's important to keep at the kind of forefront of our minds because I think everybody here has a call of God on their life. I think everybody in here has God calling them to something um, that he wants them to accomplish. So it would be natural to think, okay, if he's calling me to something, the next thing I usually think about and you weigh whether this is right or wrong, is how do I do that? If he wants me to do this, what do I have to do? And then usually comes into my mind two or three steps later, who can I get to help? And then maybe it should be uh, rearranged. Maybe my way of thinking is wrong. Maybe I should think God is calling me to this. Who should I get to help? How are we going to do it? Maybe that's a better way of thinking. Um, But... That's, that should be the covenantal mindset that we should have would be grouped together with other people, right? Like if, if you're called to teach your children, that would probably require both spouses to work at that, right? Uh, there are certain um, mandates in Scripture for fathers to teach their children the commandments, the way of God, but that doesn't mean that we read that in a hard, fast rule that the the wife, the woman, can't do that, right? If they're called to be married to the husband, the father that's called to do that, then that husband needs a helper, and then thus the wife would be involved in that, right? And so that should just be a very uh, easy family metaphor or family example that we see in Scripture of you're not going to be able to do it alone. Whatever God's calling you to do, you can't do it alone, Right? And, and most people who try are going to get frustrated. Right? And so, in, I think Paul, what we, when we, uh, if you look at verses, you can read it, verses 6 through 10, um, they are trying to go to other places. They're trying to go uh, to Phrygia, to Galatia. Uh, it says that they were just forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And then they uh, went to try to go to Bithynia and some other places. They end up going to Troas, and then Paul has a vision from Macedonia, or from a man urging them to come and help him. And they intuitively know that. I guess they. I guess what the Lord is saying is we should go and preach the gospel there, because uh, at that point there's a divergent from them delivering the letters to the saints to go and planting churches and preaching the gospel. And so um, I think that comes out of. Paul building this team that God's calling them to, to do something else or, or to take the next step, so to speak. And so we get to, if, you have, if you're using an ESV Bible in your pews or most Bibles have some kind of heading, uh, it talks about the conversion of Lydia and through the rest of the book of, or chapter um, 16 in Acts, then you get Paul and Silas in prison and then there's that miraculous earthquake uh, that releases all the chains uh, from the prisoners, the Philippian jailer is about to kill himself. And then Paul says, hey, don't do that. It's not a good idea. <laughs> Backs him off the ledge a little bit. The Philippian jailer gets converted. Uh, Paul seems to be staying with the Philippian jailer and his household. Uh, he comes to faith. His household comes to faith. They all get baptized. And then Paul then asserts his rights 
Um, because he was, th- I skipped over, he was thrown in jail because of a small little riot, which seems to follow Paul. The riots seem to follow Paul. And so, um, so in your outline, it should say that they, they increased in numbers daily. If we go back to uh, verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And so I put the references down there in the rest of the book of Acts, where it refers to the people increasing, the numbers increasing, they were added to daily, they were added to in, um, in various forms. And the only one that's a little bit divergent, I put a note in there, is Acts seven seventeen, where it's in Stephen's speech, which was referring to Israel in captivity at Egypt. But you can look at all of those references, and what I think we'd want to do is... is Look at the surrounding atmosphere, the surrounding community. Look at what God is doing around those instances where it says the numbers, they increased in numbers. And so directly in that sentence, it says that the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in in number. And so that's around Paul delivering a unified decision from the church of Jerusalem to go out to all the other churches about a doctrinal stance and a way of life. And so when Christ says in, in John 15 that all disciples will know, uh, or all people will know that you are my disciples for the love you have for one another, really it's very hard to associate that outside of being uh, unified together. It's very hard to take any step forward without seeing unity. And so just that decision from the church uh, is, is pretty big because once you get down uh, about a thousand years in history, it's uh, and 15, even more after 1,500 years of church history, then there's not a lot of unity on that level. <clears throat> and so let's look at a little bit where it says that they increased in numbers daily and, and what is going on. Um, and so I'm not going to read all these references, but I'll kind of give a recapitulation recapitu- of what's happening. And here's what I think if I was going to overarch, like how when, first of all, when a, a church grows, when the kingdom of God grows, a churches grow, and it's primarily and, and firstly, the blessing of God is because God wants to bless the community and wants to add souls to it. And so that's the first thing is because God wants it. It's not because of the uh, pragmatic approach they had. Um, and you can, I think I left in that line that interestingly, it doesn't really say anything about uh, in this instance, but in some of the references about evangelism uh, or available programs. Like, what's their kids' ministry like? What's their, do they have a Wednesday night? Do they have, uh, do they have a church program? Do they have a youth group? I didn't say that there was a lot of people in the community looking for a youth group, and they came to the church. That's not what it says. That's not what they were looking for. But what it does indicate, there was evangelism in, in most of those senses, but I think the overarching theme, in, if you were to look through all those references, is there is life. And anything that's alive is moving, even plants. So when we describe life, we describe movement. And so 
I think that's the best way I could describe when God is, is, wants to bless a community, wants to increase numbers in a church, is because he wants people to come into his life. He wants people to come into life with him. And so that looks uh, like a community that is full of joy, that's vibrant, that's moving. That means some people are evangelizing. There's discipleship going on. There's fellowship. There's just like this life atmosphere that's going on. And that's when God uh, is, is pleased and wants to add souls to that community. And so that life is just good stewardship of what God has given us. I think that's something we have to consider. Um, it, is, it does mean that a Christian community has a lifestyle of evangelism. And so normally when we think about evangelism, we think about going out and sharing the gospel, which is evangelism, but also um, just how we evangelize and how we fellowship with one another. We are, in, in one sense, witnessing to the world by being here on Sunday morning. We are not in bed sleeping. We're not, uh, even though a lot of us might want to. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, we're, we decide to come here on Sunday mornings to hear from the Word, to learn about the Word of God, to worship God, to fellowship with one another, and, and then be dispersed out. And so that in itself is a witness. When people drive past, they see whatever they're doing on Sunday morning, not going to church. Uh, they see uh, a, a church full of people. They see cars in the parking lot. And so, uh, so there is evangelism going on, but how we evangelize, uh, I think the, there's a lifestyle evangelism. There's, there was no evangelism that we hear about when Paul is going to uh, Derby and Lystra when he picks up Timothy. Now, knowing Paul, he doesn't really go anywhere without evangelizing. You know, when, when we get to Acts 17, he's in, um, he's in, yeah, in Athens, and he's in the marketplace, and he's just like, there's a bunch of idols here. And he's like all alone, just by himself. And he's like, this looks like a good place to preach. This looks like a good place to evangelize people. Where are those idols? And so <clears throat> it's not explicit that there was or wasn't evangelism. Um, street preaching, you know, gospel going out into the world kind of evangelism. But knowing Paul, there probably was. And so one thing that's, uh, I just think our, our church would do well to think about is what does a lively church look like, right? What does life look like? And so most people um, can easily put that into an individual's perspective of the fruit of the Spirit with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, but think about that in a community aspect of what it means for a community to walk in the Spirit and kind of define those characteristics of, of life by fruit of the Spirit. And you can kind of think about how a uh, community would operate that way, what kind of atmosphere it would generate, what it would look, how it would look differently in our fellowship halls uh, and how when we meet together. One thing I'm encouraged about is like, if there's life in somebody, you can't really stop them from growing. Uh, so, you know, there's no, you don't have to fill out a form and be like, I would like a Bible study on how to be a better Christian and put it into the box and we'll get back to you in three to five business days and <laughs> we'll find somebody. You like, 
Uh, and that might be a real desire. I really do want to learn how to be a better Christian. Uh, I'm waiting. I put in my card. I'm just waiting on a response. But uh, it's like you can't stop it. I, there's people getting together for Bible studies. There's um, people who want to get together and learn how to uh, biblically raise their children or something, and they're just getting together and they're doing it. They're getting together and they're praying, and it's just, it's just life. It's just growth. It's just, it's, I want to say it's, like it's just there, right? And it, it, it's, uh, it's cultivated by the Spirit. It's cultivated by Christ living in us, and, but that's what it should look like. It's, if there's life in you, you want movement forward. You want to do something. You, I think most Christians who come to Christ have this initial zeal of, yeah, this is a new life, right? I'm, this is new for me. This is, Christ is real. We're going to do something. And then it lasts about a year or two, and then it starts to trickle off uh, because there's less. There's, it, what happens in Christian uh, lives as they grow older or just get a little bit older is they start to stunt their growth a little bit. That just is a natural cycle that we see. And so you have to think about the life that Christ is bringing you into is growth and production. And it's, it might look different in different seasons, but you have to examine that we can't be a community that has life as a community unless individuals have life, unless individuals are, are growing. And that in itself is what God is I think in, throughout the book of Acts is constantly saying that he's pleased to add to those numbers because there's life, there's, there's stuff going on, they're growing in the spirit, they're growing in fellowship with one another, they're, they're loving one another, there's all sorts of things going on. And those are the communities that overtake the culture. Those are the, the communities that, as we see from here on out, Paul plants in major cities like Philippi to overtake and overlast the the culture, the pagan culture that they're in. And so um, when Paul gets to, he ends up getting to Philippi and he runs into Lydia. And so I just want to talk about in four minutes, four to six minutes, um, Philippi, because that's the last heading on that line. So why not? And so uh, Philippi, there was probably no synagogue. So it says that they met, they were looking for a place of prayer and I found some of these leading women, especially Lydia, um, who were praying by, by some water. And so that was a custom that if you needed 10 people to start a synagogue, and the Jewish custom was if there wasn't a synagogue or they didn't have 10 people, then you would meet for prayer, right? And they would usually welcome, the custom was you'd usually welcome any Jewish teacher that you can get because you got eight people, uh, nobody's like that well-versed in the scriptures, or his, or his teaching, and so you meet together and you pray, and you welcome any teachers that you can get. And so that's where Paul finds Lydia. And uh, she gets converted, is baptized, um, and then Paul and Silas, or Paul and his team, are, are uh, uh, teaching and proclaiming the gospel. And there's that demonic, um, the demonic slave girl who is is proclaiming and yelling that these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And the first time I read that, I was like, well, isn't that good? Isn't that what people want to hear? But Paul was annoyed. So usually you don't want to take the gospel witness from demons. 
Oh, let's not say usually. Always. You don't really want that. Right? Even if even the demons can proclaim something true and right, but you don't really want to take their witness. Uh, if that teaches you nothing else, don't, don't listen. Uh, don't trust the demons. Um, so Paul gets annoyed, casts the demon out, and what happens next? The slave owners uh, of the girl get upset because they're losing money. That's when they get upset. And they make accusations. They drag Paul and Silas uh, into the marketplace and say, these men are Jews and are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So first of all, that's just slander. That's not why they were upset. That's not what they were thinking. And the mob joins in. And so um, the only thing I really wanted to note in our, the last few minutes is that the, the mob mentality of you, every Christian is going to face opposition. If you're living a godly life, even, Paul was proclaiming the gospel and casting out demons, and so he had more opposition. But in some of his epistles, he says that just even if you just desire to live a godly life in peace, you're going to get persecuted, you're going to get opposition. And so that's what we should be prepared for. We should be prepared that as uh, we go out to campus and, um, and evangelize and, do, and disciple people that there's going to be opposition. There was uh, uh, an instance with one of our brothers at the, uh, in the campus ministry where they tried to get him to do mandatory LBGTQ plus training. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think that was with the letters at the time. It could have been less or more letters. I don't know. Um, or if I got them all right, I don't, I think I got them all right. But they tried to do a mandatory training because he had a job on campus and uh, he resisted and uh, they were very adamant about it and the problem eventually went away. Um, but he didn't do anything. They were just trying to force something on him. And so as, that's just one instance, but as Christians, you're going to get, if you desire to live a godly life, you are going to get opposition, and you have to learn how to hold fast to Christ and stand up against it. And so uh, with a couple of minutes left, you could uh, pray about that, and we can teach about that more. But um, when Paul's in prison, he is looking for opportunities. They're singing hymns and songs, and God delivers them miraculously to bring in the Philippian jailer. That's usually a good place to... Uh, Again, in evangelism, we usually think, and I had this, uh, this just happened to me this last week where we're doing a Bible study on Wright State and we're passing out flyers, and I'm like, passing out flyers to everybody, but I'm like, these people don't look like they're coming, they're not, <laughs> they, they've got like facial piercings or something. Uh, and, you know, we have these prejudgments, and the people that, uh, the person that did come, didn't look like the person that I would expect to come to a Bible study. And so God surprises you. But the Philippian jailer was a prime candidate to Paul, a man on the verge of suicide, to be a Christian, to receive the gospel. He's not just like, hey, uh, you know, if I was like in jail and the guy was about to kill himself, the thought would at least cross my mind that, oh, if we're all free and he kills himself, we'll be able to walk out easier. And that's not the most godly thought. But Paul was like, no, don't kill yourself. Come to Christ. <laughs> and that was his solution. And so these are the people that, uh, 
God is calling to be the first church in Philippi. Uh, a lady who is a faithful Jew who received the gospel, who was just trying to be faithful to the scriptures that who brought about Paul to preach to her, and a Philippian jailer uh, who was about to kill himself and his family. And so after he gets, after Paul gets released from jail, um, then he says he goes back and visits Lydia. And so we know later that the church grows in Philippi, but I would assume that Paul's putting together the, the jailer and Lydia to be the first members of the church. And this is how God is growing a community that's going to outlast the worldly culture, outlast the pagans, and, and to influence the whole world. That's how the kingdom of God is coming. And it's in these ways that in our natural mind, we're never going to see. We're never going to find it. But, but the Holy Spirit was moving through Paul. Obviously, there's the vision that Paul says about going to Macedonia. And, and that's who he runs into, some woman by the river and some guy that's about to kill himself. And so the glory of God is... Uh, is awesome in these instances, and we need to be praying and, and looking for who God wants us to preach the gospel to, who God wants us to go and speak to, because Paul doesn't get to go to Ephesus where, or Galatia where he wanted to, but he later does, and so they weren't ready. So for whatever reason, God wasn't ready to have the gospel preached in Ephesus, and but he, they will be here shortly, and so um, with that, I just want us to consider, you know, as we grow in Christ as a community, how we're growing as a community, how we're having life, how we're getting filled with the Spirit, if we're looking for opportunities for evangelism, and whether we're looking and have the eyes to see what God is doing or not. And so uh, I'll close in prayer, and we can drink coffee and worship. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that you would uh, move your Spirit in us to have life that we would steward uh, just the relationships we have here in this community to uh, be a blessing to one another, that we would live in such a way that you would want to bless us. We pray this through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.